On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I want to play a game. You have a date with Carrie. They were making love while that young boy drowned. Do you like scary movies? What's your favorite scary movie? It's 10 p.m. in a darkened rec room, your bikes long discarded, the moon smirking its way through the black sky, your blockbuster rental VHS fuzzing into focus, tracking lines rolling up the screen. After three previews for three more horror movies you're now desperate to see, your friends are drizzled across the furniture in creative positions, acting tough enough to be completely unaffected by the apprehension. By 20 minutes in, however, the witty banter and boozy stoned sexy party scenes are disintegrating into jump scares and more and more sadistically innovative death scenes. You start cutting glances at the uncurtained window on the other wall, its pitch black portal to the outside world, to a potential killer that could be watching you. A stretch of tension brings two of your friends closer together, their sweaty hands touching tentatively on the couch. Your most nervous friend sits wide-eyed and stiff, your least nervous friend laughing brazenly at the campy gore. It's late by the time the movie ends, later than you're usually out, and suddenly you're riding your bike home in the midnight air. You ride faster than normal. The world is noticeably different, more dangerous, more fantastical, and any shadow can seem like a monster made just for you. But even though you're freaked out, you feel thrilled too, alive, maybe even a little brave. You're outrunning something you don't understand, something that's both imaginary and real. With the cool night air across your face, the suspicious stars above. Once you're finally in your room, you look under your bed like a little kid. You don't know what you're looking for, certainly not that fictional character from the movie you just watched who was stabbed to death at the end anyway. But by now, you know the rules of horror movies, and you know that he is probably, definitely, still alive, and he will, or it will, be coming back again. Following up on part one, where we looked at the most iconic films and the true American fears they represented from the 1920s to the late 1960s, 
For part two, we will again go generation by generation through the 1970s to the modern day, looking at themes of feminism and satanic ritual abuse, of new perspectives in psychotherapy, of Reagan-era morality and greed, of moral ambiguity in times of war, and the films and voices that are coming to define the culture we find ourselves in today. With slashers, meta-horror, torture porn, social thrillers, and whatever comes next, one thing is for sure. Horror never dies. There are many ways that the shocking 1974 horror movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre has been interpreted by sociologists, feminists, psychologists, and film nerds, and parents and politicians, and the director himself. I want to make it known that the interpretations in this episode are both those of certain scholars and those of our own, and it's very clear from our research that there are so many ways to analyze the themes of a film, because at any given time, there is a tangle of culture and mass psychology that can project itself across anything and everything. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the story of a sadistic rural family formerly employed by a now-closed-down slaughterhouse, featuring unprecedented gore and the scariest weapon yet, wielded by Leatherface, a direct homage to Ed Gein, who wears the faces of his victims. Unlike Norman Bates of Psycho, Leatherface was not presented as a cross-dresser, at least not until the 1994 installment where he donned a negligee over a full women's skin suit with a fully makeuped woman's face mask and a wig. The movie also popularized the whole film you are about to see is a true story marketing technique, which certainly contributed to its success and as director Toby Hooper said, was a direct reference to the government lies happening all around him, the truth about Vietnam, the shock of Watergate. In the midst of a new passionate environmentalist movement, Toby Hooper also said it was an animal rights film, the slaughter scenes he created himself inspiring him to become a vegetarian. And interestingly, it did the same for Guillermo del Toro after he saw the film. And yet, there are many other interpretations of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There are some who say it's about the failings of capitalism and the decline of the family farm, of the crushing poverty of rural America, about the fear of the middle-class city liberals who stumble onto their worst fear, the carnage of the poor a representation of the loss of Christian values, the dismantling of the nuclear family. There are feminist interpretations, as the first blood-covered final girl escapes the house of horror, a sole survivor in the face of such masculine violence. Throw in a little of psychotherapy's male fear of castration and chainsaw as penis, with the final girl co-opting the phallic weapon. There are many who see it as an anti-feminist film, creating a dangerous enjoyment of exploitive torture against women. 
Regardless, this banshee called feminism was becoming one of the most frightening specters in the 1970s, and the new political and cultural power of women started to feel full-on paranormal. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. When Stephen King was in his late 20s, he was teaching high school and selling short stories to magazines while his wife Tabby was working at a donut shop, both of them trying to support his dream of becoming a horror novelist. After reading a Life magazine article that suggested that objects could be moved with the mind, especially the mind of young people, most often girls going through puberty and its emotional turmoil, it gave him an idea. Now, I'm not sure about the accuracy of that Life magazine article, but the idea of the special, secret, witch-like powers of the feminine has always been treated as a threat to masculine domination. One day, some woman, as Stephen King put it, said, You write all those macho things, but you can't write about women. And then Stephen said, quote, I'm not scared of women. I could write about them if I wanted to. Then Stephen went home and started writing the famous high school locker room scene in which outcast Carrie White gets her period while naked around several other girls. Stephen crumpled up the papers, not knowing what in the fuck he was writing, not knowing how to relate to this menstruating high school girl enough to write her story. And then, dear Tabby, saint that she is, took the pages out of the garbage and told him she wanted to read more. Stephen King would publish Carrie in 1974, and the film version would premiere just two years later. Your woman now. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And Eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Say it. The raven was called sin. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? Say it. The raven was called sin. And the raven was called sin. Raised with a very scary Augusta Guinean religious fanatic mother, played by the unrivaled Piper Laurie, Carrie is frightened by the blood running down her legs because her mother never told her what a period was. She's made fun of ruthlessly in the locker room, menstrual pads thrown at her by all the popular girls. They then make a cruel plan to get a hot guy to ask her to prom as a joke, while her mother continuously rails on her with the scariest Bible verses, often locking her in a closet to pray. At the climax of the movie, she's made a laughingstock yet again after winning prom queen as a joke, those mean popular kids pouring a bucket of pig's blood on her as she stands beaming on the stage one of the most iconic scenes in film history. The lasting image is of a powerful, blood-covered Carrie, fully harnessing this mysterious feminine power that arrived with her period, her telekinesis, throwing around tables, chairs, students, and eventually burning the entire gym down just with her mind. 
The destruction is enormous, the casualties many, but after all she's been through, most of us can't help but cheer her on, just a little. Stephen King had been pushed to prove that he could write about women, but also, as he put it, to prove he wasn't scared of women. He came straight out with it, writing in his memoir that Carrie is about, quote, what men fear about women and women's sexuality. Writing the book in 1973, I was fully aware of what women's liberation implied for me and others of my sex. The book is, in its more adult implications, an uneasy masculine shrinking from a future of female equality. This admission has sometimes garnered Stephen King feminist criticism, but I think that kind of honesty, that kind of owning up, can be really valuable. Plus, I love Stephen King. I'm not gonna hurt you. Do it for me! Wendy, Do it! darling, light of my life, I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. As we covered in our true crime episode, the victims' rights movement was a huge part of second-wave feminism, which, among many other pursuits, sought to improve the treatment of victims of crime, especially women and children who were survivors of sexual assault or domestic violence. In 1977, the year after Carrie premiered in theaters, Stephen King published his most famous novel, The Shining a story of a son with strange psychic powers, an alcoholic and abusive father, and a mother carefully navigating her abuser while protecting her child, who had suffered a broken arm during his father's drunken rage. In Stanley Kubrick's version in 1980, a now sober Jack gets a job caring for an enormous hotel during the winter season where the family will remain snowed in, pretty much cut off from the outside world, which in theory will give Jack a chance to write without distraction. But he slowly begins to unwind, to deteriorate mentally, seemingly overcome by some supernatural force that makes him more cruel and then frighteningly violent. By his own admission, Stephen himself was an alcoholic while writing The Shining, a man fighting the same kind of anger issues that Jack was fighting, each overcome by a force greater than them, centuries of toxic masculinity and the way alcohol can unleash those dark parts of a man. Jack's wife Wendy and their son Danny were trapped in a house of domestic abuse, cut off from everyone else. But they made it out. The abuser froze to death, and the force that was inhabiting him returned to the hotel waiting for the next man to possess. There was an enormous pushback to second-wave feminism, a revival of strong, fundamentalist evangelicalism, as the moral majority, led by televangelists, began sounding the alarm about the gays, the feminists, the cross-dressers, the environmentalists, the communists, and, of course, Satan and his disciples that were leading the liberal charge invisibly. 
Satanists were already the hot new topic, as fiery condemnation fell upon what had become a hip pop culture fascination. Making a flamboyant premiere in 1968, Anton LaVey and his new transgressive Church of Satan shocked the normies, though of course they did not actually worship the devil, mostly they enjoyed partying and challenging Christian hypocrisy. The next year, the Manson family's brutal crimes would be widely reported in the media, and many of those early reports called it a satanic ritual. Rosemary's Baby had also just come out, a movie that caused an uproar when the plot was revealed to include Satan raping an unsuspecting woman with the help of a secret satanic cult in order to create the son of the devil. There was a great deal of anxiety around the children and teenagers living in this rapidly changing, transgressive culture. Parents didn't know who or what was really in control of their kids. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. Probably the most famous demonic possession movie follows a 12-year-old girl named Reagan, no relation to Ronald, and her single mother in the 1973 box office smash and deeply controversial film The Exorcist. In the movie, Reagan makes a grave error of spiritual judgment by playing with a Ouija board and is slowly overcome by a demon that makes her do and say horrible and perverted things that are really shocking even by today's standards, spewing blasts of green vomit and speaking in a low, growling voice that is not her own. The climax comes when the priest and the demon and Reagan engage in a battle of spiritual will, the priest fighting against the evil being spat at him, calling the demon into himself, and then jumping out the window to kill it valiantly. With a backdrop of fear and outrage at the alleged total annihilation of the patriarchal nuclear family unit, This possession of young Reagan, a Ouija board-playing 12-year-old girl with a single mother, represents the evergreen fear of the various vehicles that the devil can use to get his claws in the next generation, like horror movies, cartoons, heavy metal, toys, games like Dungeons & Dragons, and, of course, the Ouija board. I think... This may be the year we officially get to say, welcome to the Satanic Panic. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready-to-eat in just 
two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week. And you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. Four years later, The Exorcist II, The Heretic, would prophetically predict another, far more dangerous part of the hysteria around Satanism. In the film, Reagan has moved to New York with her guardian and seems to be living a normal life. Still being monitored by a psychiatric hospital, it appears that Reagan has completely repressed all the memories of her former satanic traumatic ordeal. And so, in order to get to the bottom of the priest's death from the first movie, it is up to one daring psychotherapist to use repressed memory hypnotherapy to help Reagan finally recall her trauma. Something really interesting is that The Exorcist 2 came out in 1977, three years before the repressed satanic abuse panic really kicked off. A handful of Christian memoirs like Michelle Remembers popularized the theory of repressed memory hypnotherapy, that within all of us there could lie horrific memories of abuse, especially satanic sexual cult abuse from childhood, that the brain could protect us from by making us forget. Memory is a very complicated thing, and there's a lot of disagreement over how it works, especially in regards to forgetting trauma. The true problem lies in a therapist who's planting ideas in your head because it's entirely possible, in fact, it's common, for people to actually construct detailed memories that have never happened. All of those satanic panic era Christian memoirs about repressed memories were easily debunked. Though it may be true that those authors genuinely believed the stories they were telling. 
you may remember from our Satanic Panic series that there was a powerful union in the 70s and 80s between the rising fundamentalist right, obsessed with the desecration of children by satanic forces, and second-wave feminists who were attempting to combat child sexual abuse. The fusing of these two groups would eventually lead Christian and feminist therapists to agree that there was widespread satanic ritual abuse happening all over the country, especially in daycare centers, which led to hundreds and even thousands of false accusations in the 1980s and 90s. Psychologists unwittingly created a moral panic by asking leading questions to children about the abuse that they had incurred while applying various kinds of pressure to get children to disclose what they believed they'd been threatened by the abusers not to tell. The movement said to believe the children. They could not lie about something like this. But in fact, it was the psychologist's pressure techniques that had led kids to say things they knew the psychologists wanted to hear in order to receive praise instead of the light shaming they could receive if they continued to hide the truth. As news spread of this apparent underground network of daycare-owning Satanist cults, other psychologists would say that the children they were treating had also been ritualistically abused in horrific ways, sexually, physically, emotionally, mentally, with absolutely outrageous stories like preschool horse sacrifice ceremonies kiddie pools full of baby sharks children were made to sit in, and any vile kind of bizarre cruelty you can imagine. Even kids flown to Mexico and sold to pedophiles for a few hours, all within the span of the school day. True slasher daddy, Wes Craven's 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street, is the story of a serial killer gruesomely murdering a group of teenagers in their dreams with a glove made of long razor knives for fingers. And if you die in your dreams, famously, you die for real. Toward the end of the film, we find out by a confession of Nancy's mother that Fred Krueger had been a child murderer of 20 local children that got out of a prison sentence on a technicality. And so, a mob of neighborhood parents, including Nancy's, went looking for vigilante justice and burned him to death with gasoline and Molotov cocktails. And now, his vengeful ghost is coming after their children. Had Wes Craven gotten his way, A Nightmare on Elm Street would have been the story not just of a child killer, but of an evil child molester, because he said it was the worst thing he could think of at the time. But the production studio would cut that idea, worried it would be read as exploitive, because right at that time, the most extreme event in Satanic Panic history was unfolding, the first of the Satanic ritual abuse accusations that were coming out of the McMartin Preschool in California, 
the news media spreading all of this like wildfire, that this preschool abuse might not be isolated, but part of a well-connected underground cult network of satanic child molesters. Suddenly, parents, psychologists, police, and politicians panicked, and the accusations from all over started pouring in. It isn't a stretch to view Fred Krueger as a symbol of one of America's worst fears at the time, the villain that all of America, in a rare unity, wanted to burn. A lot's also been said about the 1980s horror movie as morality play, the now cliché structure for slashers. You already know, the slut dies, the kids who drink and do drugs die, and the discerning virgin lives. Teenagers of the time were flocking to dark theaters for the hot horror movies of the moment, and at the same time were surrounded by this renewed evangelical fervor that would get conservative Ronald Reagan elected and then push him even farther to the right. Reagan's war on drugs and the anti-drug campaigns like D.A.R.E., as well as the conservative retrograde views on sexuality and gender roles, were clearly influencing the new villains of horror, as were the slate of 70s serial killers like the Zodiac and the Son of Sam, who caused panic as they took out couples necking at lovers' lanes. These tropes most famously began with 1978's Halloween and continued with Friday the 13th, in which we see through the eyes of the killer for much of the film until that killer is revealed to be the mother of Jason Voorhees. Quote, Did you know that a young boy drowned? The year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. In my research, Mrs. Voorhees was, at least a couple times, referred to as a subconscious manifestation of the up-and-coming first lady, Nancy Reagan. These movies were being marketed toward transgressive teenagers, their fearful villains rendered on the screen, evil forces coming to punish them for their most favorite of sins. But fundamentalism would lose its foothold in the far more liberal pushback years of the 1990s, when religion was out again and third wave punk rock feminism was in. You see a lot, doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. 
the only Oscar-winning horror movie, would premiere in 1991, The Silence of the Lambs, the story of a woman named Clarice Starling training for the FBI, visibly wading through a sea of incompetent, patronizing male colleagues only to prevail against all odds using her sharp intellect. Finally, we had the now-cliched, strong female character. Clarice begins working with who else but a psychotherapist cannibal trying to get his analysis on an uncaught serial killer named Buffalo Bill. And what might be the great reveal of this film? That's right, Buffalo Bill is a mentally unstable cross-dresser making skin suits out of women, cementing an even more explicit legacy of the genderqueer villain in horror that kicked off with Norman Bates at the end of Psycho, which we talked all about in Horror Movies Part 1. But this landmark film didn't really usher in a highbrow era of horror, thank God. Instead, the slasher's legacy carried on in the ironic, sardonic self-awareness of the 1990s. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. Do you like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Scream was the first popular meta-horror movie to make it to the mainstream, with Kevin Williamson's brilliant script and slasher daddy Wes Craven back to direct one of the most iconic horror franchises of all time, certainly one of my very favorites. Featuring a star-studded 90s cast and a budget to match, the success of Scream would not only spawn three sequels over the coming two decades with another on the way as we speak, but it would also inspire all my favorite horror movies that included smart 90s banter, just enough self-aware camp, big budgets, and all the cutest celebrities. Slashers like I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, and The Faculty, with beautiful suburban teens killed in new and creative ways in whodunits that ended always in unpredictable reveals. Scream explicitly listed the rules to surviving a horror movie, based on the slashers of the 1980s, including A Nightmare on Elm Street that's mentioned in the film. The first two read, you can never have sex, and you can never drink or do drugs. It's the sin factor. Wes Craven knew the reputation that Reagan-era slashers had gained, so he did what every good, moody teenager and young adult was doing in the 1990s. He got introspective and made a commentary on the genre he helped to create. He also tried to switch things up in progressive ways, with strong female leads like Sidney Prescott, who were a change of pace from the killer-focused films of the 80s, where the villain always continued through every sequel, and the teenagers and the final girl herself are always completely disposable, rarely returning again. He also intentionally changed the rules. Sydney is not a virgin. In fact, she loses her virginity in the film. And yet, 
Spoiler, she is still alive after everything she's been through. At the turn of the millennium, horror was starting to get more acceptable in the mainstream, with less gory and more psychological storylines like The Ring, The Sixth Sense, The Blair Witch Project. But then something happened that changed America irrevocably, an event that's echoes would push horror back into the brutal margins, back to transgressive gore, back to pushing the bloody envelope to extremes that American popular consciousness could not have imagined. So you have no idea right, right I now? I have another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right, oh my gosh. Another plane has just hit, it hit another building. Many, if not most of us, watched at least some of the coverage of the events of September 11, 2001, as they unfolded on live TV. It was an attack on our own soil that killed almost 3,000 civilians, an attack on the most symbolic institutions of American identity. To most citizens, it felt unsafe to go anywhere that people gathered in large numbers, and on every single day, on what felt like every single news station, the terrorism risk meter bounced between colors, indicating the threat level of a terrorist attack at any given moment, an attack that could come at any location. Tensions caused anti-Muslim suspicions and violence, pushed through bills that rolled back freedoms, and helped fuel the war on terrorism in Afghanistan and then eventually Iraq. In the beginning of the Iraq War, there was a strong support among mainstream America, given that George Bush had said they were making weapons of mass destruction, and so stopping Saddam Hussein was understood as an imperative. But events were unfolding that would complicate the narrative of the war on terror, beginning in April of 2004, when CBS ran an hour-long report complete with frightening photos of American military personnel torturing detainees at Abu Ghraib, a prison in Iraq. There were reports of physical abuse, sexual abuse, and even murder. The images are deeply haunting, the soldiers and contractors, both men and women, smiling with thumbs up towards the cameras, and even next to dead bodies. Over the coming months, more disturbing first-hand accounts would come out, and then more photos. And then an American contractor would be beheaded by the Taliban in retaliation for the acts, the video posted online. With the increasing violence, with rising death tolls and no evidence of weapons of mass destruction, this God-sanctioned patriotic war so embraced by a fearful public was no longer simple, not a clear and exact battle between good and evil. Our side was doing bad things, too. Oh, Amanda, you don't know me, but I know you. I want to play a game. Here's what happens if you lose. Right in the middle of all of this, just six months after the photos were released from Abu Ghraib, a horror movie called Saw would premiere on Halloween. 
kicking off the most controversial genre to date, charmingly dubbed torture porn, the next great revolution in shocking gore. Following Saw's unlikely success were a slew of other torture porn movies like Hostel, The Devil's Rejects, Martyrs, and The Human Centipede. But Saw has always been the heart of the genre, a movie that follows a serial killer who's been dubbed Jigsaw, who handpicks his victims because of their particular wrongdoings, the ways they are wasting their one wild and precious life. Jigsaw believes it to be his life's work to tailor these gruesomely sadistic games, modeled to each contestant's specific transgression, in order to give them the gift of finally appreciating their lives. That is, if they survive the horrific scenarios that often involve causing themselves unimaginable pain or harming other people in unimaginable ways. But Jigsaw doesn't see himself as the elusive, sadistic serial killer he's portrayed as because he doesn't kill his victims. He clearly believes he is presenting them with an opportunity from a superior moral stance, enacting these tortures in the name of a higher moral agenda. This was all happening as the media was reporting on the real tortures happening in the deserts of Iraq, committed by those who likely still believed themselves to be doing the right thing. While scenes of torture had certainly spiked in the genre of horror, they also spiked considerably in the primetime television landscape. A nonpartisan nonprofit called Human Rights First found that from 1995 to 1999, there were a total of only 12 scenes of torture on primetime TV. But from 2002 to 2007, there were 897. Something else was changing, too. Prior to 2002, the character performing the torture was almost always the bad guy, trying to extract information from the brave hero who doesn't give in to the horrible pressure and pain. But after 2002, especially on the mega-popular show 24, the torturer was the hero, stopping the terrorist plot by any means necessary. But still, in horror movies, the torturers remained the villains. Definitely, the scene you're talking about mm. is about the fear of being a black man in a white neighborhood. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're so often vilified and, you know, the notion is usually like, a, you know, white person walking through a black neighborhood mm -hmm. is in trouble. What we've seen to be an actuality in the last couple of years is it's, 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 it's terrifying to feel like an, an outsider in, in a place that's not necessarily welcome to you. I know I'm not alone in assuming that Jordan Peele's Get Out will be looked at as the defining horror film of the decade, premiering at Sundance just days after Trump entered the White House, coming on the heels of highly publicized police killings and the Black Lives Matter movement that would follow. 
This was a major landmark in film, both because it's one of the best horror movies ever made, but also, as Jada Pinkett Smith put it aptly in the self-aware opening of Scream 2, quote, I'm just saying that the horror genre is historical for excluding the African-American element. Prior to the last 10 years, Popular horror has been almost entirely sculpted by straight white men, like everything else, and what they make will always reflect their own experience, which means the experience, most often, of the white middle class. If you will, please recall one of my most favorite horror franchises, Final Destination, which began in the year 2000, a very gory romp with murder scenes in which the unseen force of death with a capital D uses Rube Goldberg-esque methods to kill a bunch of teenagers who cheated death's plan because Devin Sawa told everyone to get off a plane when he saw a vision that that plane would explode, which, after a handful of people got off, did explode. Best known for creating this franchise, Jeffrey Riddick was one of the few black directors in mainstream horror, and certainly one of the few queer directors out there as well. And 20 years ago, he was already attempting to change what the genre looked like. He tried writing black and gay characters into the first and second movies, but the studio would change that script to create an all-white and straight cast. But you'll be happy to know, as I am, that Jeffrey Riddick is back, reportedly working on Final Destination 6 as we speak. And I expect things will look a little bit different this time. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Though black directors have been rare, some white directors have attempted commentaries on race. Two very important films came in the wake of the footage of the police beating of Rodney King in 1991 that sparked major protests that raged, not unlike the protests we've seen in the last 10 years. The People Under the Stairs was one of Wes Craven's less popular and way less conventional films, and one of my personal favorites of all time. 
The story begins with the young fool Williams and his family as they're evicted from their apartment in the inner city of Los Angeles by their unempathetic, affluent white landlords named the Robesons who want to gentrify the area and make it white and rich. Through a series of events, Fool and his uncle break into the Robesons' mansion, only to discover that they are an evil S&M slumlord couple who turn out to be brother and sister and refer to each other only as mommy and daddy. And they come after Fool in all kinds of terrifying ways, using racial slurs and becoming, as many critics would note, a kind of satire of 1980s greed and the poverty it was producing, quote, a cartoonish parody of conservatism, with Mommy and Daddy being simply a, quote, camouflaged Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And I am happy to announce that The People Under the Stairs is also getting a reboot with Jordan Peele at the helm. Five months after the Rodney King riot, Candyman, written by white author Clive Barker and directed by white director Bernard Rose, would attempt to present the horror of gentrification and poverty, as well as the evils of slavery, following a middle-class white woman in college who is studying folklore and urban legends, particularly one centered around a low-income project in the south side of Chicago, and the killer of the story who may be real after all. I won't give away too much in this one, since there is a new Candyman coming, this one directed by Black director Nia DaCosta and produced by the busiest man in horror, Jordan Peele. It's clear that new stories for non-white audiences will be an enormous marker of this generation, but one can't help but wonder what kind of movies will come to represent the present pandemic era that we're living through. And we really won't know until there's time to process this event. There's time to look back and try to make sense of our fear. Before there was Scream, patron saint slasher daddy Wes Craven would try his hand once more on the Nightmare on Elm Street series in a 1994 meta slasher in which all the previous movies were just that, movies. Called Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Wes actually plays himself in the film, now directing a sequel with Nancy returning as an adult. But when she starts having dreams of this character, Fred Krueger, just as her character did back in 1984, Wes reveals that he's had premonitions that the Nightmare on Elm Street movies had captured an ancient evil force inside them, and that Fred Krueger was just the newest host, the newest manifestation. Horror villains are very, very often invincible, and the cliché goes that even if it seems like they're dead, they will resurrect themselves from the blood-soaked spot where they're finally killed, often by that final girl. 
Whatever this eternal evil force represents, it continues to animate the worst of our monsters to bring them back again and again. And so it goes. The eternal demon finds someone new to possess. The chainsaw-wielding Leatherface and his family wait for the next batch of teenagers, immune from the law. Carrie's blood-soaked hand rises from her grave to grab at her bully again. The Overlook Hotel waits for the next man to drive to madness. Death with a capital D is always there, enacting its unknowable plan. Jigsaw trains a protege so that his moralistic work can live on. Someone always finds a new reason to slip into the ghost face costume for revenge. Say Candyman three times in the mirror and he will return again. Each of these movies, in their own way or ways, are about the very human fear of our own destruction, a destruction which may take many different forms, but an eternal, necessary fear which can never be beaten entirely, only held at bay. There are small reliefs, including horror movies, from the terror of real life, a place to vent a little bit of the fear that animates each of our lives in ways we wish it wouldn't. As we talked about in our episode called Death, terror management theory posits that much of what we do in our life is to avoid thinking about death, our great and scary mystery, and that repressing this knowledge of our own mortality can actually cause many negative consequences like harsher judgments on others, less compassion, and more conservative views in both private lives and in our larger culture and even in our politics. But this thing called fear will never be gone, never wholly banished, never truly killed. The monster is only banished when the protagonists finally get brave and shed their fear and make that force recede back underground in a variety of gory ways, back into the world of dreams, back into the strange woods, back underground, back into some secret liminal location. That is, until we accidentally summon them back again with a brand new American terror. For the time being, we can only find ways to outsmart our fear. They certainly aren't for everyone, but for many of us, horror movies have helped. They sure have helped us here at American Hysteria cope with anxiety, and studies show again and again that these films can act as coping mechanisms, giving us a safe place to vent some of our pent-up fears, and they even teach us something about how to survive, like never running upstairs when you're being chased by a killer. And interestingly, a recent study out of the University of Denmark showed that horror fans have actually been faring better psychologically during the pandemic than non-fans. 
And so we extend our sincere gratitude to all of you who've kept alive the tradition of horror through your creations. I actually don't know who I would be without you. Without the true joy of walking the dark and haunted hallway of your row at Blockbuster. The rules to surviving the real horror movie of life continue to change with each generation. But if we can learn them, if we can remember them with each passing American nightmare, we just might be able to make it out alive. At least, until the sequel. This was American Hysteria. I didn't talk about all of my favorite movies, and we had to make some cuts, and that's really sad. But I just wanted to say, my favorite movie of all time, Stephen King's It from 1990. You can learn and hear all about my experience with that in our episode called phantom clowns and we just re-released an episode called believing in the blair witch all about my second favorite horror movie the blair witch project now we have to acknowledge the incredible voice acting in this episode from miranda zickler will rogers and a little bit of me make sure you check out miranda's new single all mine from her band kawinka that's k-u-i-n-k-a now on Spotify. And make sure you check out Will's podcast, Guide to the Unknown. Let's recognize our always bangin' soundscape from Clear Commo Studios. And who could forget Dear Riley Smith, our unrivaled co-researcher and co-writer, my brother in life and my brother in horror. And back to Miranda Zickler, our co-producer and co-editor, and my partner in watching an ungodly amount of horror movies in the last few weeks, and, well, the whole pandemic. Next time on the show, somehow, someway, we are going to condense and cover urban legends. If you love our show, consider becoming a patron for extra content, especially our second podcast called Walk With Me, where I just went on a walk through an old graveyard talking about the Donner Party as well as the Gnostic Gospels of Christianity. So if that sounds good, come and listen to Walk With Me by becoming a patron, either by the link in our bio or going to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can find us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast and on Twitter at Amer Hysteria. Thanks as always for listening. And I can't wait till the day we can all find ourselves back in that dark theater watching a horror movie together. I will never take it for granted again. Have a great week and I'll be seeing you soon. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.